Hey, Dan, are you ready to? Yeah, yeah just hang on a second. I'm just finishing up something here. Yeah, there. Okay, take that. Uh, who, who's taking what? What are you so mad about? Look, I posted a pretty innocuous tweet from Prime Minister Justin Trudeau's town hall event in Winnipeg this week. You know, it was at the beginning of the event when I usually just post a picture to show that something's happening and I'm there. And I, you know, I in my tweet, I described Trudeau as being jacketless and denim sporting, you know, just to let everybody know he was comfortably casual at the event. Uh, and... and a whole bunch of liberal trolls jumped down my throat. Wait, liberal trolls? Those are not two words you often hear uttered together. Yeah, but trolls they were. Whoa, real investigative journalism there, Dan. Not denim. What a monster. What about his hair? They went on for hours kicking the little crap out of me for having the temerity to mention what the prime minister was wearing. I don't know what to do. Liberal trolls? My whole world is upside down. Oh, uh, hold on. Hold on. You, you take social media... Too seriously, Dan. This could have been like, uh, I don't know, a semi-organized campaign to jump on anyone who looks at Trudeau the wrong way. Or, I don't know, I'm, perhaps it's a sign that we shouldn't talk about what politicians wear anymore. Yeah, you're probably right. I mean, to quote the timeless Carrie Fisher from When Harry Met Sally, you're right, you're right. I know you're right. Okay, don't, don't worry. Next week, I know it, the trolls will move on to someone else and... The libertarian attack dogs from the Freedom Convoy and those disciples from Max and Bernie, they'll be back to making your life miserable. Don't worry. Ah, that would be nice. The universe unfolding as it should. The Winnipeg Free Press proudly presents, in partnership with CJNU 93.7 FM, Nigan and the Lone Ranger. Here are your hosts, Negan Sinclair and Dan the Lone Ranger Let. Bonjour, hello, welcome to another episode of Negan the Lone Ranger right here in the CJNU studios together again. Yeah, we couldn't be more excited that you took the time to come and visit <laughs> us in person. You know, you, you did warn me when we started on this journey that, you know, you have a demanding schedule and you were going to have to like, you know... I travel in, I travel you know. occasionally, okay. Yeah. I, travel I feel like I should queue up the theme from Welcome Back Cotter, but you know <laughs> Welcome back. Well yeah, I, 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 I swooped in, but uh, speaking of swooping in, this week uh we saw the Prime Minister. I mean, you know, it's interesting the Prime Minister has been here quite a few times yep. over the past uh few weeks even. You know, like I think we've seen the Prime Minister more recently, although you know it's hard to tell with the pandemic, but the Prime Minister a lot recently. You, uh, as we mentioned in the front part there, talked a little bit about what he was wearing, but he was in town to discuss some business. Yep. He's talking about spending $85 million uh, for a new Canada Water Agency uh, headquartered in Winnipeg. Uh, Mayor Gillingham was there. there. Of course, there was a new big town hall, well covered. All my friends in Ottawa were like, oh, you know, check out what's going on over there. And uh, the Prime Minister is in town. What do you think yeah. the Prime Minister is in town so regular these days? Um, well, I mean, these events are usually, you know, fairly strategic. I mean, when a, when the, the country's Prime Minister travels, and I mean, all all uh, Prime Ministers do this to a, to some extent. You know, they, they get out, they get seen, they get away from, you know, the navel-gazing in the House of Commons because, you know, the House of Commons is still in session right now. So it's kind of take a day off. Now, you know, Trudeau's thing, though, is the town hall. This is his um, chosen uh, uh, forum. And I would say they're usually pretty good, like as, a, as events to attend as a journalist. They're pretty good. Like um, they don't control admission. A anybody can walk up and get a wristband and get in. Uh, they don't really – they don't pre-select questions. Uh, now, obviously, they have invited a lot of people. Uh, to the event. So they know a lot of the people who were there. And, it, you know, it's certainly not going to shock anybody that the crowd is, you know, somewhat partisan. If they're not actually partisan, they're typically, you know, people who probably would support Trudeau. And, uh, but, you know, just the whole idea of like going in front of people and answering questions, you don't know what question's going to come. And kind of, you know, riffing off that, that is like for a politician that's working without a net. And generally speaking, he does pretty well. He, it wasn't his best performance this past week. Uh, and I've seen, I don't know, six of them. Uh, but, you know, it's still interesting. He had 
put in some time at the ridings. I mean, we have to remember there's the a by-election. And so uh, you put in some time walking with the candidates. And I mean, one riding looks pretty pretty straightforward. I'm already seeing the the wave, would the be tsunami of, yeah. of red signs. And that's my neighborhood. So Winnipeg South Center. And then of I, I just this morning, uh, we came from the riding of Portage Liscar as I was speaking in, in Morden this morning. <laughs> and I got to see the signs of, uh, there is a number of Max M. Bernier signs, enough that's quite noticeable. Uh, but there's, uh, you know, he also found some time to go on a riding, which generally will not even be on the radar for the Liberals, but he still found time to be able to go there. So certainly you can see not just by election fever, but election fever as being a big part. I mean, he even, not to get back into clothing, but whenever you see Trudeau with his sleeves rolled up, you know it's getting close to election. Man, you are going to get it now. Because <laughs> I'm telling you. Like, Luckily, uh, I don't think any of our trolls listen to the podcast. No, but uh, honestly, <laughs> it was shocking, the the reaction. Because it was just, I don't know what, like, so, like there was, uh, I don't know, some cranky contagion in the water supply, you know, so, you know that morning. Because it was just, it was kind of weird how it snowballed. and uh, And honestly, like, I don't mind if you don't like my tweet or my column, but just remember, like, you know, you grits out there that are like, you know, swarming uh, columnists. Uh, these are the tactics that were honed and perfected by rebel media and the PPC type. So, hey, if you want to employ their tactics, be my guest. But I'm just saying, <laughs> I, own it, I, 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 own I did it. it strategically. I didn't do it on Twitter where they, that's their haven. <laughs> I did it right here on the podcast. And, yeah. Um, you know, speaking of, uh, I, this is a this is going to be segue. a great segue. I, I Here we go. I don't know what the segue is between <laughs> uh, Justin Trudeau and uh, you can't actually think of two more diametrically different kind of people, other than to say they've both been in politics for a very long period of time. Uh, this week saw our last week's guest, Kelvin Gertzen, uh, appoint uh, a former the former Justice Minister Jim McRae to what's called the Master's Appointment Committee for the justice system here in Manitoba, which basically selects judicial officers for the Court of King's Bench. Uh, there's a whole bunch of other things they do, oversee wills, oversee appointments of uh, particular people within the judiciary and so on. But, I mean, Jim McRae, uh, where do I begin? Uh, I would just say that, start with my, I have a little uh, email folder in oh, my yeah. in my uh, We were inbox. CC'd on a lot of those emails, by the way. Uh, <laughs> I I, that's right. Yeah. And I have a little uh, inbox, which is called hate mail. And uh, every time I see an email from Jim McRae, I quickly put it into hate mail. I don't even read it. And I hope Jim McRae is listening because then maybe I'd have a little bit less hate mail in my inbox. But this individual who's the former justice minister uh, has made an entire career in his older years, in his retired years, uh, and to basically be a, an ardent residential school denialist say that residential yeah. schools were good for indigenous peoples he said that uh that there was uh the people make up lies when it comes to what happened at residential schools that generally residential schools has been this great propaganda on the country and while he does recognize that some atrocities happen he says that but um the idea that this individual would be in charge of major judicial appointments within the justice system is baffling and tells me that kelvin gertson and the justice ministry Maybe don't do Google searches? Yeah, I don't know. There may be a layer of, uh, you know, local writing, you know, uh, politics here. Jim McRae was uh, MLA and and I think is still fairly well-known and and, uh, and respected in Brandon. Brandon is going to be a pivotal election battle this fall. And, uh, you know, there's a very good chance it could swing both Brandon East and Brandon West could swing NDP. It's happened before. So uh, there may be an element of that. There also may be an element of, we don't think we're going to win the election. So we're going to like do a solid for all our, you know, venerable supporters. Um, but uh, you know, it is on a, like on many occasions, uh, PC government, both under, uh, premiers, uh, Brian Pallister and Heather Stephenson show an incredibly tin air, tin ear about issues where, you know, really they're just buying themselves trouble. And, and I, you know, I, and I will say early on when he started sending these emails about residential schools, he, he, it was a little bit more thinly veiled, like what he was trying to say. And he, you know, it started out, well, I know a lot of, like, I know people who've, who've taught at residential schools. I know people who've run residential schools. 
And, you know, and this is horrible for them, you know, because, you know, they, they may have been reasonable people, right? And, and the school may have been. And, but, and, and I've, as yeah. I've always said, there are many people who had learned skills, had a good day here yeah. and there. But, of course, none of that replaces your parents, the land, no, your culture, exactly. your language. And, and so, you know, this whole movement, and, and Jim McCray is part of a movement. There is a small, yeah, I believe, very vocal, I, I think that's loud funny group of people across the country they even run a newsletter smearing me regularly uh, but they they make their life mission to basically say indigenous peoples are a bunch of liars well i i think it's this it, it's part and parcel it's an extension of this idea um and you can see it's a strong strong theme in u.s politics right now you know in discussions around uh critical race theory this idea that we shouldn't have to spend any more time apologizing for things that happened before we were born. Like, get over it, right? Like, asked and answered, apologies given, let's move on. Why are we dwelling on this? This was recently, there was a whole bunch of high-profile uh, Tory cabinet ministers from the UK government appeared at a neocon conference in London recently. And this it was that was a huge theory or uh, a huge theme of what they were saying. Connected to, because uh, the debate there is about reparations and further uh, remedies for uh, slavery and the uh, you know, setting the record straight and possibly compensating the families of slaves. You know, but it's this idea that people who are not directly affected by the atrocity would go around telling the people who are directly affected by the atrocity, get over it. And, and the only yeah, point no, I keep trying to make is, you know what? We're going to let the victims... And how the intergenerational victims. Listen once yeah. in a while. Yeah. What I say to all these people who have built careers off of violence, and Jim Jim McRae is is a person who's benefited tremendously from the entitlement and privilege of being a a Canadian person in a conservative riding. You know, who has let's all remember that you know Brandon is a place negotiated by treaty. So how about listen once in a while? But you know, I, I want to talk, I don't want to talk about Jim McRae for just a minute. Here's what I want to talk about is what I think is the most interesting part of the story that is the least talked about. Um, but I think is something worth noting. Uh, when, you know, Jim McCraig very quickly resigned, stepped back from this committee. Yeah. Uh, once we, as the media, and I think the free press was one of the leaders in this, because I quickly got a phone call from our reporter, Chris Kitching, about this, and, and he stepped down almost immediately following the media, kind of informing Minister Gertzen of this <laughs> egregious error. Uh, but it was interesting because Wap Canoe, head of the NDP, who in the past has called out uh, minister at Lajemodier, Alan Lajemodier, when he said flagrantly incorrect things around residential schools, he didn't say a lot. Uh -huh. He did he did say uh, that this message is offbeat, is not appropriate, and so on. But it, he wasn't the face of the resistance. It was actually Dougald Lamont. Yeah. It was the head of the Liberal Party in Manitoba who has took the space or got the most amount of coverage anyways, did the most vociferous response both in the legislature and then in media following. That's interesting. That tells you that there's, there's ways in which I think the NDP and, and Wab Canoe particularly are maybe not coming at the forefront of an issue like this, or maybe they saw that the writing was on the wall to begin with. But it's interesting because who fills in that vacuum but the Liberals? And so yeah. the Liberals are seeing some kind of way in which they can make a foothold within Indigenous communities. And, uh, you know, cards on the table, I was given a Queen's Jubilee medal by Dr. John Gerard in our community and so on. But I can see that there's a lot of energy the Liberals are putting in into the Indigenous vote. They've done that in the past, but I think they're really going into it this time. So a, a couple of possibilities uh, about Wab Canoe's underwhelming response. Number one is, quite frankly, they just could have missed the boat, right? Like they could have, uh, they could have been late in picking it up on their radar. Um, you know, the NDP, like they, the NDP certainly at least half of their brains are, are dedicated to thinking about the election right now. And you know what? There are times when the uh, issues management functions of an opposition party, like a government, they just, they just don't react. Like they don't get in as quickly uh, on an issue as they should. So that, that could be a competence issue, could be had a bad day issue. The second one, though, that's kind of interesting is whether or not the NDP has started to do the calculus around you know, Wab as a the potentially uh, Manitoba's first First Nations uh, premier, certainly as a, you know, a well-identified, high-profile Indigenous man, and it, whether they've started to do the calculations around, do we want Wab Canoe being the sharp end of the stick 
every time an issue relate an indigenous issue comes up. And I, I know a lot of people, well, a lot of new Democrats are gonna immediately think that's cynical and offensive. But you know what? It's if you talk to new Democrats, they're cognizant of the fact that the progressive conservatives are gonna try and scare people. They're gonna try and scare people about Wab Canoe. That he and you know Oh you're already seeing that, but yeah. perhaps scaring them into that he's a liberal. Like how many posters now <laughs> does you show up? How could you say that? <laughs> they even covered <laughs> J- Justin Trudeau as uh in or- orange paint. Like they've put sort of an orange banner underneath yeah. Justin Trudeau. Yeah. I you know, like these are like at some level political strategy, particularly as it relates to election campaigns, is really the darkest, darkest recess of politics. Because it's there where you have to discuss all the things that you don't talk about at any other time, right? All the ugliness, your own ugliness, the ugliness of like, how could we nominate that guy, you know, in such and such a writing, uh, and the ugliness of the electorate. And, uh, you know, I, I'm not saying that that's a, like, that's a definitive uh, you know, explanation of, of why the NDP were slow to the dance or why they weren't more, uh, you know, uh, active. But, you know, I mean, certainly, like, if you think of the performance that Wab put in on the Alan Lajimodier thing, and I was in the lobby of the, yeah, uh, it was, you know. I mean, he was clearly addressing Ishii. You started off by saying, as an honorary uh, witness of the TRC, that's what I pointed out, is that he wasn't actually speaking as the NDP leader there. He was speaking as an honorary witness of the TRC, but at the same time, you can't deny that he's the leader of the opposition. So in that moment, um, certainly was, uh, although I'm not a fan of your, of your, of your image around the, the sharp stick, but I think that it, it's. <laughs> Did you notice me searching for something? That I was, you maybe, know. maybe a, uh, a, a strong treaty reminder <laughs> that, that, that or a reminder of treaty that, that there's, you know, we're all in this thing together. Yeah. I mean, and, I was speaking mostly just about, about that issue. Like, did they want him? To be oh, the uh, first, one hundred percent. I think know, that you've hit something yeah. there, and that's what I was trying to point out. Which was, um, I as a member, you know, sort of looking to see this political play out. I immediately thought, well, I bet you Wob's going to probably jump in there. No, not in this case. And maybe it was because it moved fast. Maybe it was because the media moved first. You know, maybe yeah. they didn't feel they need to put the energy in. But then the fact that Dougal Lamont has tipped the most amount of press. When it came to decrying the government for this, calling the government out for this, and in the legislature uh, leading with those questions, I think just says something very interesting that uh, we'd want to keep note for going forward in the future. Yeah, I, I think that the the decisions that all three parties make between now and the election, the notes they want to hit, how they respond to the challenges from the, their opponents... Uh, you know, a lot of times, you know, I'm in the business of saying, hey, you know, you can't draw too many conclusions from that. But you can draw conclusions from the the tenor and tone and content of an election campaign. It is at and one these level. Moments, or, yeah. These little moments carry a lot of weight. I mean, they reveal themselves know, through these. Jim moments. McRae. Uh, and let's all hope that uh, I don't wish any bad will on the man, but I certainly would like less emails from him. But but I, <laughs> let's hope that that these kind of archaic old views that really divide and spread a lot of uh, misinformation uh, really don't permeate as many further as they already have. Uh, but at the same time, um, these kind of moments do. And, and addressing these moments, yeah. I mean, this is the leader that, this is the reason why uh, Premier Brian Pallister really lost favor within his own party, which is not about closing ERs, not about closing, yeah. uh, you know, other facilities throughout the problem. He did it because he his his misinformation around indigenous peoples. Yeah, there is. There's also finally uh, to put a punctuation on this. There is an issue for those of us in the media uh, because you know I I you and I received his emails like over the last couple of years, like certainly since the TRC came out, and um, I even remember at one point saying. Um, cause you know, outside of this issue, Jim has always been very generous with me. If I wanted to talk to him about something, he, I could always get him on the phone. I remember even saying, you know, like my, my gift to you is that I'm not going to write about this. And I, I think that, you know, I, I think, I think I should be judged, uh, by readers on that decision. Uh, should I have written 
about what he wrote to me. It certainly wasn't off the record. He he made no, you know, no. Uh, no, he was very open and, and yeah. He'd always say, "I want to talk more about this." Yeah. <laughs> well, he, he was actually, you know, I mean, the ones I got encouraged me to write more to expose his point of view on this thing, and you know, and I I did write back to him and say, "Look, like to me, that dog doesn't hunt. Uh, this is it's just you know." Like, it's not my job to tell the intergenerational victims of the residential school system Never mind to get over it. It was you know? completely with faulty logic. The, the few yeah. that I did read had, had complete misinformation. Uh, but that being said, uh, here we have today, uh, we're yet another, blessed. I think. We are blessed. We are so lucky. A, because you have an incredible network. And, uh, and you have the ability to sort of consistently invite people to the podcast. But then at the same time, I think there is a measure of trust within people in very significant positions within our community here in Manitoba with members of the media that, uh, and I think today's conversation will be evidence of that. We have Lynette Saragusa, who has just been uh, appointed the new CEO of Shared Health, uh, come in very quickly. It's just been a few weeks on the job. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about healthcare in Manitoba recovery from the pandemic. I mean, we all know Lynette from being on the nightly news every night with Dr. Brent Rusin. Uh, she's the former head of nursing in Manitoba. I mean, we're going to talk a little bit about the pandemic. And I think we also have to talk a little bit about the Portage Place development, which promises this $300 million healthcare facility. Uh, and what does that mean for a government that's closed healthcare facilities, but now seems to be opening it in other areas of the city? Will people criticize uh, the fact that it's just a sort of few blocks away from HSC in one direction, a few blocks away from St. P in another direction. Yeah, it's a it's a fascinating conversation. Uh, please enjoy, and uh, if it does provoke thought, uh, feel free to reach out to either uh, Nagan or myself, and we will we want to keep the debate going. Uh, here is our chat with Lynette Sirihusa. We're extremely pleased. To have Nigan Sinclair here in the studio. Is Nigan our special guest this week? Uh, yeah, no, yeah. Let's get to our real guest. Okay, so we're really happy to have Lynette Siragusa, who's the CEO of Shared Health, the new CEO of Shared Health. She wants us to, to remind the viewer, or viewers and listeners that she's only four weeks into the job, but uh, many of you who followed healthcare as a major news story know that she has uh, a strong legacy in Shared Health, has, has filled a number of roles. And, um, you know, it's, I think shared health is newsworthy all the time, but it's been particularly newsworthy, um, you know, these days, uh, not necessarily because, uh, Lynette, you're going to correct me if I'm wrong, but it, it was a bit of a roller coaster of emotion that got you into this job following the resignate, the sudden resignation of the previous CEO. And I think they gave you 20 or 48 hours. Well, probably less than that. Uh, so tell me what it's like to be, you know, suddenly confronted with a job that I'm assured only a select group of people would even agree to take on. Mm -hmm. Well, there, that's true. There wasn't a lot of notice and I had to think quickly. Uh, but I also, you know, really thought about where I've been and where I want to go. And I truly believe in Manitoba's healthcare system. And I thought I might be able to contribute in a positive way. So I took the chance and here I am. Did, did they give you, I don't know, 45 minutes, 60 minutes to kind of make up your mind? or, or No, how, they, gave me, they gave me a little bit of time in advance. And I had the opportunity to speak with the university about what the options were, as well as my family and uh, just made sure there was support all around for the decision before we made that, yeah. Yeah, so the, this the, was this kind of your Al Pacino moment? Was this, you know, I keep trying to get out of, <laughs> of the high pressure jobs and they keep pulling me back in or, because uh, there was, uh, you a, a position was created for you as Associate Dean at the Faculty of Medicine um, and, the, and you're gonna correct me if I'm wrong, but the, certainly the, the discussion around that was that, you know, you had done more than two years uh, in the front line of the pandemic response, which could not have been 
I don't imagine there's a more stressful job in all of healthcare than that. And that this was kind of, uh, you know, time to pass the torch a little bit to other people and move on to, to something else. Is that is that an unfair way of characterizing your move to the university? Well, first of all, it wasn't a position that was okay. created for me. It was a position that was already there, okay. and so uh, it was vacant, and and I was the, I was appointed to that, and yeah, I think it was um, that I probably needed. A break and I think the university also gave me a different perspective so part of my job half of my job was the vice dean of education the other half was working with on and health services and um, yeah it was it was a wonderful place to work and I learned a lot from the people there and also um, had a chance to recover from COVID quite honestly and just reflect back on you know, what went well, what what didn't, mm-hmm. uh, what the lessons were going forward. So, yeah. So, well, I mean, yeah, so, I mean, Lynette, we're colleagues at the University of Manitoba, although different campuses, you know, I'm off way off in the, Fort in the end there, Fort Gary end, and you're downtown in the HSC side. And uh, there, there's, you know, the thing about leadership is there's no template for these kinds of positions. There's no way in which you kind of look to see what happened in the previous person who was previously doing the job. And then oftentimes, especially in this case, which is a very abrupt change, uh, clearly there's uh, a need for emphasis in certain areas, maybe change. And, and you think about the experience that you're bringing with Ongamazin. And for those of you who don't know about Ongamazin, it's the Indigenous Health Unit at the University of Manitoba, which is a huge emphasis, of course, not just at the university, but in Manitoba. Uh, what would you say is your focus areas? I know you're only four weeks in the job, mm-hmm. but the focus areas that you're looking for. And if you were to give us just a, what needs to be done today, tomorrow, and next month, let's say, uh, and meaning the top three. Top three. Well, I come back into the health system, Dan. As you said, I have I have history. So um, shared health was originally... Um, created in 2017 and at that time the purpose was very clear to me that we had three main areas of work and one of them was um, to deliver provincial clinical services to tie the pieces the different pieces in the province together and that includes Health Sciences Center being the provincial trauma center serving the province. It included uh, diagnostic imaging as well as the emergency response services. So those were clinical deliveries. The other part that um, Shared Health was responsible for was the shared administrative services. So when we looked across the province, we saw that there were disparities in different regions. It could have been northern or rural. Um, a lot of resources in Winnipeg, not the same resources outside of Winnipeg. So how do we actually leverage what we have, create efficiencies, and also more balance? So that administrative support includes um, supply chain, legal services, um, supporting different ways in the administrative. Capital planning would be one of them as well. And then the third thing with shared health is that uh, shared health is responsible to develop a provincial clinical and preventive plan, which was in my past life, that was my job, to work with clinical providers across the province in all areas to talk about what do you need to provide better patient care. And it was just the most amazing process to have hundreds of clinical providers in a room for the first time ever and understanding the challenges when you work in a remote community or when you work in a rural town or when you work at a quaternary trauma center and really starting to appreciate and understand the differences but also the common goals. And so um, we, we launched that plan and we, we met with thousands of people literally across the province. I traveled, I saw <laughs> where they worked and, and what the struggle was. And so we launched that finally 
in November, November 29th, 2019. And I remember it was such a big day. We had worked so hard. It was my first media event. And I thought, we're going to change the world. We're going to make this well, province then, amazing. <laughs> I mean, but then, you know, sort of not minutes after, but very shortly after that, you said November? November 29th. Yeah. So, I mean, that's four months out from what will be the biggest global health crisis in our lifetime. Exactly. Maybe. Uh, so what are some of the lessons or the impacts that are things that have slowed down since then? Yeah. Well, a lot of things got stalled Everything, in the clinical yeah. <laughs> plan, but actually in some ways. Yeah. So of course we didn't know that a pandemic was coming, but we were somewhat positioned to um, respond provincially because we had had those conversations. We did have that understanding. We had built relationships. And so going into the pandemic, it was obviously we wouldn't want to do it again, but um, we started from a point of what do we have in common and how do we work together to get through this? So I would say four lessons were learned. One was um, how we can be so innovative when when we're allowed to be. So I think about the digital health people um, developing patient portals so that people could assess themselves as to whether they need to go for testing or isolate. They could check their own lab results. Um, the drive-through testing, the uh, voluntary isolation centers, the vaccine the, the way they span that, I mean, that was incredible. <laughs> and it, it took innovation to do that. It took people thinking differently and working differently. So I thought that was pretty amazing. That was one lesson. Uh, the other lesson would be the focus on prevention of illness and promotion of health. So that's where we leaned in heavily to stop the spread of the virus and prevent people from getting sick before they got sick and had to come to the hospital. Of course, that still happened, that was inevitable, but you know, it really, I think back on that and I think that was the answer really is to focus on that community care, that primary care, that prevention of illness. So, and um, the, other, the other major thing I guess was um, paying attention to our disadvantaged populations as well. That, that was so clearly evident during, the, during COVID. And we had spoke to that in the plan, but we lived it during COVID. And so that was important. And then the last thing I would say is just how effective we can be when we actually come together as one integrated provincial health system. We had everybody at the table, everybody understood the, the mission, and everybody worked as hard as they could to deliver the best that they could. And again, it wasn't always perfect. And the, you know, there was yeah. some successes and failures, but there was a lot of lessons learned. I think Dan has a question here, but I just wanted to say that the, the innovation, I think, really Manitoba led in lots of different ways. And one of the most important ways was in shared data and data sovereignty yes. when it came to First Nations. And I mean, no one else was really having that on the table. But then I think back to one of the most important elements for the community and all of my relatives up north and mm -hmm. in the city was those uh, shared uh, health forums that was led by the Assembly of Manitoba Chiefs and other organizations and so on because of the kind of leadership around shared data mm -hmm. and the fact that uh, First Nations were leading in sharing that data and being able to handle the trauma response quite effectively. So, yeah. I mean, we led the nation in that. Absolutely. So. Did. And so many brilliant leaders. That's another example of people coming together as well to do that. So Marsha Anderson who led that, a lot of that work with, with a coalition of people. But I know she was wanting to do that for so long, and COVID was... Well, it needed a it, nudge, because I think that there wasn't, seen for, there wasn't a lot of purpose seen for that. Yeah. I mean, there wasn't a lot of will, and then suddenly there was will, I think, because they saw the effectiveness of it. Now, that's just a fait accompli across the country. 
that you would share data with First Nations and let them share that data and work on the mm -hmm. solutions instead. But now that carries forward, right? That what do we do now? We don't go back to what we were before. We look at how we carry that into the future. So, um, you know, I can tell you that like at the Free Press, you know, editors and reporters, I mean, there's this, we spent a fair bit of time talking about our coverage of the pandemic and, you know, those instances where we were hypercritical of uh, government, uh, both from the SME, you know, uh, senior uh, administrative levels and the mm -hmm. political level of government. And, um, you know, I, I mean, I think, you know, we look back on it and think, like, really, what are what were reasonable expectations mm -hmm. given the magnitude of the the challenge the, the one the one lingering concern that i have uh and i think it was expressed in our coverage is that there was such a deep contrast between what subject matter experts outside government were saying and what subject matter experts inside government were saying about the macro strategies and um, I'm not saying that one side is is right, because I think that, you know, surely if there's an issue where <laughs> there's, there has to be some room for debate about best practices and strategies and whatever, this is it. But it, it, it was always a point of concern that there were so many people outside government proper who thought we were doing the wrong things. And at the same time, you know, like most journalists, I probably watched, you know, 90% of the uh, news conferences and listened to you and, and Dr. Rusin, among others. Um, how do we resolve that one issue? Like without getting in right into the weeds of the pandemic response, but why was there so much disagreement between people with similar professional backgrounds, you know, medical, scientific, public health? There was such a, a contrast. Like, so how do within we Within Manitoba? Well, not just within Manitoba, but I think it really it was a worldwide phenomenon. Government, you know, government had their own people internally, mostly, except for New Zealand, actually, that built their entire pandemic infrastructure was built with people outside government because they didn't really have a, you know, a, 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 those people inside government. But everywhere else, you know, it was this, it seemed there was this constant uh, conflict between what physicians and scientists were saying outside and what physicians and scientists inside government were saying. So it, it, can we, like, can we resolve that? And, you know, now hindsight can be valuable as long as I don't use it as a, as a springboard for criticism, but mm -hmm. with hindsight now, how do we resolve that? Well, I think um, my experience is that and it might be different than Dr. Rusin, because Dr. Rusin had a bigger scope than I did. I was really focused on the health system, but we rely on our clinical experts. They are experts not in their field. Some of them are nationally world-renowned experts, and they're also very well connected with other clinical providers in other provinces and, and in the U.S. And so I trust them. They, they base their decisions on evidence, and they guided us for a lot, of, a lot of COVID. So we made those decisions because we trusted our teams. And, you know, if it was different, if there, I, I never personally felt that um, we were, at least while I was there, that decisions were blocked. They may ask questions. And I think that's fair of our government officials. They may debate mm -hmm. the issues. That's okay too. But someone had to make the ultimate decision. And I, I always felt that they went with the clinical provider's direction. Um, but I think if ours, our decisions were different than other provinces, it might be because our population was different as well. Maybe we had more mm -hmm. chronic disease. Maybe we had a different population that had to be considered. And so I think that might be the yeah. basis of it. I was thinking more, um, I guess we got deep into it, you know, maybe end of 2020, beginning of 2021, which was such a horrible time. It was a rough time. Um, you know, that's when, you know, we started to see uh, healthcare professionals in Manitoba that were not part of the government proper mm -hmm. stepping forward and saying that they disagreed with 
the strategy uh, and tactics that the government was employing. So it's not, I'm not really thinking about different provinces. There was some variation okay. with different provinces, but I'm thinking about researchers, medical professionals, clinicians on the front line, um, you know, uh, coming forward. There were open letters written, uh, published in, you know, newspapers, thankfully. Uh, and, uh, yeah, like it, it, again, like I, I'm not, I'm not trying to get into a who was right and who was wrong. What I'm saying is like as a journalist, when you see all these big minds yeah. on both sides and they are violently disagreeing with each other about what should be done, the question of why that gap exists is one that should be answered. Well, that is a good question because, I would say Dr. Rusin and I both made every effort to have the conversation. We were not experts in mm -hmm. infection prevention and control. We are not critical care providers. Mm -hmm. So we would rely on our people to tell us what needs to ha what's happening now, what do you need, how can we help, where do we go from here. And though there were voices, I, I agree, but they didn't actually necessarily come through for solutions. Um, they went around in a different direction potentially mm -hmm. because I heard those too, but not through our incident command structure. So, and that's fair. People, people can voice their opinions in whatever platform they want to, but it didn't always go through us is what I'm saying. Okay. I, think, I mean, something we're identifying through this part of the conversation is around I think uh, something that emerged was always there, but really emerged a lot during the pandemic, became very evident anyways, and is this kind of gap between science and politics. Mm -hmm. And uh, it seems to me that sometimes uh, we think they're closer than they really are, but then that we get the pandemic and we realize that there's people who just don't believe science or they mistrust science or mm -hmm. they think that science has an agenda or that science is political. Uh, and I think that something that is led to a lot of um, atrophy or a lot of, uh, certainly a lot of people who have lost faith in the system. Some of them, some people even lashed out or, or say, you know, that their human rights are being compromised by, by vaccines and so on, which has led to just a whole lot of uh, several pressures in the system, anger into the healthcare system. I mean, I've never really seen as many warnings at hospitals around be nice to the nurses, be nice to the doctors. Uh, and then on top of that, the tremendous amount of workload that doctors and nurses, healthcare professionals, even custodians, uh, admin staff, security, uh, endlessly working, um, having had some firsthand experience with my father recently in the ERs. Uh, it's just an exhausting situation. So uh, there was a, a survey that came out last November, which said that the majority of nurses in Manitoba have feel pessimistic about the profession. And the evidence certainly is there of people leaving the profession now at one time, just a, about a month and a half ago, one third of nursing positions are available. And for uh, we're bringing in people from the Philippines to be nurses. How do we get people to uh, a have faith back in the medical system in Manitoba? Uh, and like generally, I think most Manitobans do, but there are certain very loud segments that don't. And then second is how do we get people to come back to the profession and have faith that it's a profession where they don't have to spend 24 hours a day, seven days a week, that they can actually have a home life balance, that they can have a career that won't exhaust them, that they won't face violence? Mm -hmm. Good question. Um, and I would say that is top priority right now for me, not just nurses, but all professions need to feel safe and need to have balance. Uh, when, when I think about the priority being good patient care, it comes from the people who work for us. And that does include, you're right, the support staff, the admin support, the volunteers, everybody. So when I, when I think about the beginning of COVID, I remember thinking, wow, I've never seen our province come together in such a way as this like it was it was the community was engaged people were listening we had a platform to say our messages thank you to the media um, we had private industry helping out we had nonprofit it was it felt so connected and very purposeful and then you're right as the pandemic went on you saw more 
polarity happen and not just in Winnipeg you saw that all over the place and there were social issues happening as well too right um and so it was a long haul (laughs) that time but when I think about now where do we go from here I'm a I'm a nurse by background and I think about wound care and you need time to heal and you also need the right environment so I think and I can speak myself personally people need time to recover from COVID and everything else from the experience of COVID it was devastating to every healthcare system not just ours and so we need they need time to recover and we need to give them the environment that allows them to heal and thrive. And I think that comes from, it's a multi-pronged approach. There's not one silver bullet for that, but I think um, we start with the recruitment. We talk about how do you retain people, and we also talk about training so that they have support around them. So I think the, you know, those of us who write about government and politics, I mean, invariably you also become a, a pseudo lay expert in, no, 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 but I, <laughs> I'm saying that we, we have to become fluent mm-hmm. as a lay person in healthcare because it, it is, it just eclipses almost everything else government does. And I mean, I've known, I think it was one of the first great lessons I learned about reporting on healthcare system that nurses really are the backbone of the system. I agree. I am not diminishing the importance. I don't want like the paramedics union and the healthcare support workers union to call me and, 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 you know, like, cause every, there isn't an unimportant job in health, but when you have a shortage of nurses, uh, that compromises the ability to move people through ERs. You have to cancel surgeries. You have, you know, it, 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 they really are, you know, the, the beginning, the middle and the end of how the system works. So, and I want you to correct me if I've, am I embellishing or exaggerating at all, but we're not just here, all over North America, but here too. We're in a period right now where the people who are still serving as nurses are questioning their future mm-hmm. as nurses. Uh, a lot of nurses have left the profession. Some have gone to work with, with private agencies that ironically are ending up getting hired back into the system. Mm-hmm. Others are leaving to do completely different things. Um, the interest and enrollment in at ground level in nursing programs has waned significantly. Um, you know, it's just, I mean, if you, if, and you probably do have people talking uh, to you about, you know, should my kid become a doctor? Should my kid become a, a nurse? And I, I've heard some of those conversations. And I think, at least from the parents' point of view, it's a, it's a tough conversation to have right now, not just because of, you know, concerns about let's say the administrative part of it, but also concerns about this happened in Ontario after SARS, right? It was harder to get people to choose a career in medicine after going through that experience. So uh, how do you rebuild the trust and engagement? Because I think that is the, the thing that the organizations that represent nurses are saying over and over again. We don't feel listened to, appreciated, we don't feel uh, like the government is giving us encouragement to make this a long-term career. And, and, and I had a nurse in a personal experience, I wrote about this in a call, say, we want you to write about how bad things are because no one else is hearing us and mm-hmm. we can't, we don't have enough, we don't have pillows in the ER, we don't have blankets in the ER. I mean, they're, 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 I had a nurse tell me to write about that. Mm-hmm. She's Lynette's making a lot of notes, which means I've said some things that she wishes to. She wishes to (laughs) refine. She's going to refine some of my my, which is exactly the reason that was the invitation was to tell me if I'm wrong. Well, I think trust comes over time. So if people are not feeling trust right now, it's good to know, and it's our mission to build it back. That's that's what I would say about how do you build trust. But I would also. Your comments about people leaving the profession, I left and I came back. And people sometimes have to leave to rest and to rejuvenate and then come back. And they're always welcome to come back. But like I said, we have to make sure the environment is conducive 
so that if they stay, they can heal, they can have some balance, they can have some rest because they need that. The way they have been working is not sustainable over time, but that's up to us to support them. Um, and it's not, again, it's not just one person who can do that. It requires, I would say, legislation, regulation, it, in, it requires funding. So I was just speaking with the University of Manitoba last week, and they had 300, they've increased their nursing spots, they've expedited the pace of graduation. And they said with the 350 seats, they had 450 applicants. So people still want to go into healthcare, and it is a good profession to be in. And But we want to make sure that when we recruit them, because we will recruit them, uh, that we have an environment where they feel happy to come to work, they're excited to do a good job, they feel joy with their team, that has to come back. And that's going to take some time, and it's going to take investment, but we're, we're committed to that. Yeah, I, um, I, hope, I hope that's right, or I hope that, that people feel, feel that, right? Because um, I just, I, my recent experience, I think, has really disheartened, because you kind of think as a member of the public that, that there's, um, there's an understanding of what's happening, at least on some level throughout the layers of the profession. But uh, when you, the frontline workers say that they really feel that they're, that they're at a loss, mm -hmm. it almost feels like uh, that must, might be permeate throughout the system as well. Yeah. Um, I went, um, I toured HSC the other week, and I was talking to the nurses in the eMERGE. It is a hard place to work. Mm -hmm. It is a hard place to work, um, partly because I think just the staffing challenges, of course, but there's also been a lot of turnover and the population, it's tough population that we know from COVID that um, there's been a lot of mental health addiction. and addiction issues and they see that on the front line and just talking to them, it does, it makes it very real. Yeah, I mean, I guess the, the, the way to sort of humanize that is that HSC, having gone through it, even I went through the pandemic, I went through HSC when they were still allowing people to support and visit and not have to go by yourself. But mm -hmm. uh, I went through HC and the emergency. And um, I mean, let's face it, it's 90% Indigenous, right? And it's mostly Indigenous peoples who are using that, uh, some immigrant populations, some other populations from the neighborhood. But generally, it's an Indigenous spot, especially for people coming from the north. That's where they get sort of uh, funneled to uh, while they... Um, anyways, the one, the one thing we can really learn from the pandemic is that uh, Indigenous communities certainly understand the intricacies of healthcare. And what I mean by that is uh, nowhere else in Manitoba were people very willingly to give up their human rights uh, for the purposes of health. Uh, people agreed to curfews. People agreed to having their distance from their home control. They're running check stops to protect not just themselves but other Manitobans. So there's this kind of very intricate understanding for Indigenous peoples around health and around the importance of health at this time particularly. And so uh, here we are about a new $500 million development at Portage Place that's been announced and and just like the, H the HBC building by the Southern Chiefs, uh, there's a health component or there's a planned health component within that. Uh, inevitably, this will be about Indigenous health and this will impact Indigenous peoples who mostly are the ones who use Portage Place or the ones who use the HBC building. Uh, what do you think, like, where do you see perhaps some potential overlaps or perhaps some challenges? Because I think people would say, well, they just walk over to HSC, they could just walk over to uh, St. B. Uh, but here we are talking about major healthcare providing in the downtown area, probably going to be Indigenous peoples that will be mostly served. Uh, maybe taking a little bit of pressure off HSC is just one kind of answer, but I don't want to give you the, the potential answer and what I think would be the benefit of having uh, healthcare within those facilities in the downtown. But uh, what do you think would be, what do you think about this proposal or what do you think about the needs of opening up more healthcare providing for downtown? Mm -hmm. Well, I was a little bit late to the planning because <laughs> it was quite well underway when I got there. But 
Uh, I, I'm really excited about the potential there. Um, I think, you know, the biggest difference that I see is that going to emergency is for emergent care or is for episodic care. You're not necessarily going to see the same people. They're not going to know your story. They're not going to know your background. You start from scratch every time you go in. Where at Portage Place, I believe what they're looking towards is building up primary care and having a relationship with the patients who go there, the clients who go there, and having that continuity. Because that's when I traveled around Manitoba, I I remember going to the First Nations community and and northern spots, and they said, you know, the, the, the providers who come and they leave and they come and they leave and that's really hard too like you want to build trust and well, that's the most a- anti-indigenous thing possible like in our lodge you would know who is providing right. your medicines who'd be actually picked your medicines you would know who picked your medicine who refined your medicine who cooked your tea like you would know all yeah. the layers yeah and they would be specifically thinking about you as they're putting words into that medicine yeah nice uh, well, and we've seen it work. Like we've seen it with Ongamazin. We've seen it with others who um, they're committed to the community and they serve the community and they serve for them and with them, you know. And so that's what I would hope that this Portage Place is about is it's not it's not about people coming in to have episodic care. It's about supporting a community mm-hmm. to be healthy and to have good experiences. And, and that's for the staff and also for the, the people that they serve. So just by way of reminder, because uh, sometimes we move pretty fast here on the podcast, oh. uh, but uh, True North Sports and Entertainment's real estate division has made a $500 million proposal to reimagine Portage Place, uh, take it away from being a retail power center. The biggest, probably the most valuable part of the reimagining is a $300 million uh, facility that Shared Health is going to spearhead. And there's, there is going to be, um, you know, uh, primary care. At, you know, and I understand it's early, but they describe primary care for uh, new Canadians, for Indigenous people, for the people in that area, mm-hmm. uh, along with a new uh, location for the Pan Am clinic uh, and surgery. Um, so let's just let's just deal with the idea of we're adding a major new component of the you know, the inventory of healthcare facilities in the city. So let's deal first with Pan Am. Um, uh, Well, and I know, I've written tons about the evolution of Pan Am since the government bought it. Uh, But I'm going to bet that they're on the verge of bursting through the seams of their existing facility off Poseidon near the Pan Am pool. So is that that partly why this makes sense? Is they're going to need a new facility and it can, we can piggyback that need into this development you know what um i cannot speak accurately to that because pan am is with the winnipeg regional health authority so i don't have a lot of details but it does seem to be a very busy place and it probably (laughs) needs some refreshing in terms of infrastructure but next question please yeah that's okay well (laughs) Well, i mean undoubtedly just just having very deep personal experience and it's is anecdotal of course but like it's the best kind of experience (laughs) yeah 50% 50% of the Indigenous peoples who are using Portage Place are people who have who who need wheelchairs, who need walkers, who are senior citizens. I mean, it's a key area that has to be addressed. And I think that undoubtedly, most of those people are probably using Pan Am and other facilities. But this is like a, this is, this is a, a, a logical answer to a very serious issue downtown. But I mean, the real big question I want to, uh, I think that needs to be asked is, when we open this $300 million facility, it comes at the heels of closing so many others and closing many others that have that would have addressed some of those issues, but perhaps re-centralizing them might have been the positive outcome of closing some of these other facilities, which has been much talked about, much written about in the paper and so on. Mm-hmm. Well, I think, I think that makes a lot of sense. Sometimes you have to bring the healthcare to the people rather than asking the people to go to the healthcare. And uh, I think this could have really positive benefits. And 
the way I understand it from just the, the few conversations that I've had is that they are going to work with the community to really talk about what do you need, how can we serve you best. And so it'll be, um, it'll be a combined effort to provide better care. There, there was also, um, and again, this is I'm conflating another issue that may be more directly in the the WRHA field. But a lot of people brought up Manitoba Clinic, and and the need to kind of populate Manitoba Clinic. It, does that really work into the consideration for a project, you know, like this? Because uh, it, 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 you know, theoretically that could be a source of even additional uh, primary care if you could find. Mm-hmm. the primary care physicians. And I, so that really dovetails to the, you can build it, but uh, you're going to have to assure me that they will come. So if we're going to build new spaces for primary care, that by the time, you know, it's going to take years for this mm-hmm. thing to unfold, but we're going to have the medical professionals there to staff it and provide, you know, the level of service that the building deserves. That's the goal. Yeah, that is. I mean, the there's goal. even talk of like MRI units, CT scan units, X-ray yes. units. Yes. I mean, like, wow, that's a huge investment, and also seems to be uh, somewhat odd considering that there are facilities in the city that are uh, lacking those or not have enough to deal with their current patient in- intake. So. But I mean, I, I I like to think this is glass half full. I mean, if re if rediverting, if closing those centers and creating what has been a very difficult situation at St. B, for example, right? Uh, but then investing that new, taking that money and then putting it in the downtown, that seems like a pretty smart move. Yeah, and I'm not sure we're going to have to have more discussion about it. Um, but that announcement was to launch the conversations. Some of the things might be moved over and some of them will, might be net new. And so I'm thinking about the dialysis. Yeah. And if you've ever been to a dialysis unit, sometimes it depends on where they're you go. But yeah. They're overwhelmed and they're not great places, great environments, uh, just because, you know, natural, you're looking for natural light and, and um, it's, it's a hard place to be and you have to be there weekly, daily sometimes, right? So um, having a better space for our patients is also something that I think is a good investment too. Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, uh, we could, uh, could we start the second part, the second hour of the podcast and go back and talk about the <laughs> We didn't pandemic. tell you. Now yeah. we're going to get into. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, your, your media person just had a small coronary over in the corner. It's a good thing. It's too bad there wasn't more health care in the downtown for him. Um, no, it's, you know, like there is, it's so tempting uh, to take you down a number of different rabbit holes mm-hmm. at this point. But, you know, you've been so kind and generous with your time. We're not going to do that. So uh, I do want to say, though, like, uh, big thanks uh, early in your term, making the time to come out and talk about a lot of issues that are really fluid right now. I mean, I, like, you know, even with the this whole True North Portage Place thing, like, I think what will eventually come is going to be much different than what we've seen, uh, like Could after be, consultation. Yeah. So, yeah. Uh, so you're you're an excellent sport for discussing it as it as the proposal yeah. stands now. I appreciate that, and I appreciate too. The, I mean, so much about health, and I think especially in the media, uh, we can spend time in the real dark places and rightfully so i mean we have to mm-hmm. write about these experiences i was thinking about uh the most amount of calls that i get these days are people who have absolutely terrible experiences in the healthcare system indigenous peoples who are mm-hmm. really angry really upset and they want me to write about their personal experience and so i get that regularly uh, at the same time um i think you're brought in for uh, a track record of success with the pandemic but also hope, you know, if there's anything that I've uh, experienced around nurses, but also people who are, uh, have seen success, that success breeds success. And so, and so I hope, I'm really glad that you bring uh, this kind of hopeful nature to a position that's going to be very difficult. Yeah, thank you for that. You're right. The health, health system is not perfect. And there are things we definitely need to fix. But I appreciate the balance of there are good things that happen every single day in healthcare, and we can't forget those stories as well. So while I bring hope, 
my goal is also to bring confidence and um, start making some positive moves forward. So thank you so much for the opportunity to talk with you. Miigwech, yeah. And I've, I've always said that there should be endless parades for everyone in the healthcare profession for what they've done for the past three years at all levels. I, I, I spent agree. A, an hour with Brent Rusin during, we did this that project, the 24-hour project, where mm-hmm. each of us covered one hour, and I got the honor to, to follow Dr. Rusin around for an hour. And I've never seen anybody with such poise but also just like endless demands like uh yeah. completely overwhelming so you too so miigwech to you and thanks for your work and thank you and uh, at the parade i hope you're at the front yeah <laughs> where we're waiting until the free press like increases our budget for the horse remember how we've asked for that's, a horse? We, that's right so if we, we also, get the we're, horse we're starting with t-shirts we yeah. like t-shirts first if we get the horse the parade is soon to follow lynette thanks for your time thank you so much it was a pleasure to talk to you and thank you for your contributions during covid too you were our voice a lot of times you were the platform where we could spread the message so appreciated Well, that's another great conversation on the Egon and the Lone Ranger podcast. Uh, what an interesting foray, but I hope that uh, Lenin at Saragusa comes back again. Well, it is, uh, you know, it's like skydiving, the podcast, right? If you, oh, no. Well, no, like the, the first time <laughs> where, you jump out of the this plane, going? it's no big deal, right? Like, because you don't know what it's like. So the true test of the value of the experience is, is whether, whether or not you, you have a parachute. Out, whether yeah, that's right. Isn't isn't where no, it's the first time you, you jump out, you're strapped to somebody? N- no, but the the point is because this is my brother who did this. Okay. He jumped out of plane with a, a, a girlfriend because she was a skydiver and he loved it. And she said, as skydivers do, okay, great, let's go. Let's like, back in the plane. We're going up again. And he said, as soon as they cut back up. Uh, having done it once and now knowing what the experience was like, he couldn't jump out again. So that's why, you know, like if, if so all <laughs> so the people we invited, these, this is a one time only <laughs> podcast. We will never come back. No, no, no. I'm saying once we ask them to come back, we will find out whether or not oh, it was a good, that's whether good it was a test. good experience or not. Well, everybody leaves smiling, even though, uh, you know, we, we sometimes ask some pretty tough questions, but they leave smiling. So that's good. And I also think that it's a it's a great opportunity for Manitobans to sort of see a whole array of different views, and uh, nothing's more important than healthcare at the moment. So that was a great conversation. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in uh, this week, and uh, we're probably going to have a couple more episodes, and then uh, I believe the plan is that we are going to take a summer break. Uh, for July and August and come back in the fall with all kinds of exciting new stuff and maybe even t-shirts. <laughs> we're, we're in currently in negotiations with companies. Let me tell you the millions of investors that have call, cried out to us. Uh, it's basically been Adam saying, do I have to do more work? That's basically. No, that's I, right. I just yeah. want lots of t-shirts. <laughs> yeah, that's right. <laughs> Thanks yet again to CJNU for providing us the studio. It's nice to be back in studio. It's really nice to be around everybody. And uh, of course, all of our good friends over at the Free Press, uh, Paul Simon and Wendy Sawatsky and everyone else that helps with the podcast, especially this week. Uh, we also talked about our fellow reporter, Chris Kitching and the some of the great work that he did on the uh, Jim McCray story. So thanks to him. Uh, and uh, big thanks as always to everybody who listens to the podcast. Please reach out, send out messages. And we'd love to hear if there is someone in the community you'd like to uh, for us to invite uh, to have on the pod. Uh, we're making plans for the fall to invite who we'd like to, who you'd like also to hear from in Manitoba and Canadian politics. So a big miigwech to you and thanks, Dad. Thank you. Thank you.